uh, Future Fossils, and uh, my name is Evan Snyder. My co-host is dun 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 Michael Garfield. Oh, That's where you're supposed me. to Sorry, talk. I didn't realize we started. <laughs> <laughs> That was just messing with you. That's the official start music for you, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that every time you get on a call or walk in a room. Yeah, I just, I should just, there should be a little red light blinking in the corner of my, my field of vision at all times. So that's, <laughs> that's called hypervigilance, Michael. Actually, vigilance is my middle name, Gregory. Gregory means watchful. Oh. Uh, but at any rate, hi guys, I'm Michael Garfield. I also work here. <laughs> in a highly relativistic sense. And our, our guest uh, tonight is our friend Mariah Karina. I was sent a few links before our uh, chat here tonight uh, for your YouTube channel, so we'll go ahead and link to that in the description of the podcast if people want to check out your really awesome and, and fun rants on YouTube. Awesome. Thanks. So, Mariah, this is a special occasion. You are our first female guest. True. And really? And yeah. even though we have just started this podcast, that's still a big deal. That's an honor no one can ever take away from me. <laughs> yeah. Well, which is not to say that we don't have an, a lot of really amazing women or future guests and are in the process of, of booking them right now. But uh, you are somebody that I just don't ever get to talk to as much as I would like. And so I'm really glad that we, we have you on board. Um, since you're going to be better at defining this sort of multivalent, slippery identity that you've created for yourself than I am, why don't you tell people a little bit about what you're, uh, what you're into right now and, and what's alive for you at the moment? <laughs> I like the way that you describe that, largely because, um, because it's been very, very difficult for me to construct any sort of identity to put on myself. Um, Pretty much because I, uh, I spent so many years following my own growth process and just getting into to things that I've been interested in, and it's led me down so many roads <laughs> that it's hard to put one label on it. Um, well, we only have room for one label, so you might have to. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. How would I describe myself? I would say. We need a hashtag. No, I'm just I'm just getting there too. Darn. Sorry. You know, see, this is this is the exact the exact issue that we find ourselves in. You know, right. if anything, I think identity construction is one of the great violences of probably capitalism in this area. It seems like, you know, there's a time when you get to be free of identity or at least in terms of branding yourself as something and it only comes back in when we try to enter the workforce and come up with our publicity materials and our website and all of that. Yeah, actually, we, we spent the whole first podcast, Evan and I, just going back and forth about the nature of time. And then after that, that sort of numerical conversation or geometrical conversation, it felt right to make our second conversation all about a more feminine understanding of time in terms of you know cycles and influences and so we see this, we actually, we talked about this, this issue of, of time as, from some points of view, something that you, can, that you can name and quantify and measure, and in certain other senses, something that's very much unique and, and relative to the observer and mm -hmm. uh, kind of shifting and, and, you know, you can never really be sure that, that uh, you know, there's so much about the quality of one moment compared to the quality of the next that makes mm. this this minute 
di- you know, totally different from any other minute that's ever been. And mm-hmm. it, it, you're right that it does seem that it's it's uh, cricket pressure that requires us to not only measure time down to the fractions of a second, but also uh, to name one interval compared to another interval for the purposes of trading it in a place. So, yeah. so that's actually one of the reasons I'm I'm really glad to have you on board so that you can you can help us uh, poke at and unravel some of these assumptions that we make about time and, and the way that we we exist within it. Yeah, please do. That mm-hmm. sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love um, I love the things that you're pointing to in time. And actually, when uh, you first threw it out on Facebook that you were looking for potential topics about. Um, what you wanted to cover in this podcast, I think I even recommended to you this fundamental question of culture. You know, I'm certainly in alignment with Terrence McKenna in thinking that culture is not your friend and being very suspicious of culture and the way that they instill cognitive categories and the way that they police boundaries of things like identity. And um, It seems like we live in a time where culture is almost being held up as the solution. You know, people seem to think if we could make an intact culture or a uh, life-supporting culture, that that would somehow be the answer to a lot of the problems that we find ourselves in without seeing the way that it's reimposing the same conditioning towards what is the measurement of time what is the worthiness of a human being? What is allowed to really drop down into an experience in one's life? Forgive me for, for playing devil's advocate here because this is... No, please. You know, because this is the question, right? It's like we all have boundaries that we would love to see obliterated, but then what do we do? Do we replace it with nothing? You know, it's like every cell has to have a membrane around the cell that you know, gives it its integrity as a unit. You know, mm-hmm. and so how do how do you imagine groups of people coming together? Because uh, you know, culture and society are like instinctual for us. Like we yeah. we absolutely uh, come together in groups that live together, that work together. So how do you see that happening without there being uh, as as you mentioned in your video that culture tends to tends to organize around the ideology uh, in which there is an us and a them. Mm-hmm. That, that all of our that our our ideological ideological systems kind of create that that boundary across which compassion is not afforded to people on the other side, you know. So mm-hmm. like, how can we how can we keep the the best parts of culture, the parts that coordinate us and allow us to work together, right. uh, and without throwing away, you know, everything that makes us human. Right. And really everything that allows us to be in relationship to each other, right? Like language, like time itself, which organizes action and activity and creates the matrix that allows society to run. No, I don't think it's about um, completely throwing out the boundaries. You know, if anything, even the question of how we arrived at the boundaries we currently do is a rich and fascinating investigation. Like you were saying, how closely the systems of time we have now are linked to the history of industrialism and development in this country. You know, the whole um, transition between measuring times in terms of seasons to measuring it in sunsets and church bells 
to the work hour, <laughs> to minutes, mm -hmm. to Google search in a fraction of a second. Yeah. Like that's a fascinating progression that we find ourselves in. It is. And then to take the other side and see that if we only live in that notion of time that's been culturally imparted to us so much so that it becomes part of our own cognitive experience, we miss out on what it means to actually drop into the fullness of a moment, to actually remember what it's like to be outside of that system of time and the joy or the sorrow of the feeling nature beneath that system. Lots of windows into it and different perspectives you can take it at different times. And man, what an intro as to, to what you're interested in, by the way, because that, that dives right in and we don't have to even like segue at all, which is great. I always like the uh, phrase that Terrence McKenna pegged of uh, culture not being your friend, but I always kind of thought it would be more interesting to look at it, and this is kind of how I feel about it too, as maybe uh, not friends with benefits or frenemies or something along those lines. Where there, are, <laughs> there are elements that you can like take them all down to. Like, I'll take my Star Wars and I'll grab that and I'll go to the movies and walk away happy. Uh, but then at the end of the day, I, I would rather not... Uh, you know, have any sort of pay into a uh, system of relinquishing or, or taking power from people, that kind of thing. And maybe Star Wars is that. I honestly don't know. But <laughs> as, a, as a person, I sometimes just have to follow my, my own little, you know. <laughs> and so the culture is part of that. Culture is part of who we are. Absolutely. And I don't think, um, I, I love that you're helping me clarify because when I say culture, I mean something very specific and I, I'm touching it now talking to you guys, which is super exciting because I think it means, um, really like a lack of awareness. Like when I think of like the, um, the boundaries that culture imparts, the way that it's experienced is someone doesn't even realize that they're there. They just are um, only expressing a sort of part of themselves because that's all the culture allows. And they don't even understand the ways in which they're being hemmed in. You know, I think this is what's so exciting when you take psychedelics or you go to another country and you don't take it for granted, the customs and beliefs that you hold because you see that there's another way to do it. <laughs> like Star Wars being bad, Star Wars is fucking awesome. Then again, then again, uh, David Brin, science fiction writer, has been, and I'm, I'm, I'm charging right down the alley on this one, Evan. I love it. David you mean David Brin by talking? Yes, right? uh, David Brin, different person. <laughs> yes, the the author. Yeah, has uh, made quite a bit of heat in the last year or so. Uh, in his t taking a very open and, and public stance against Star Wars on an ethical basis, because he, he points out that both in the films themselves, as well as in interviews that were conducted with George Lucas, that the, the original Star Wars trilogy, as well as the prequels, are taken basically, uh, when you put them together, it's basically a, a, a mythical argument against democracy. And that, uh, you know, he makes, he actually held a, a mock trial for Star Wars where he was the prosecutor recently. And, you know, makes, makes this point that, you know, China, talk about cultural relative, you know, the relativity of, you know, seeing things from within one particular ideological envelope or another. China loves Star Wars because in China, it's very obvious to everybody 
that the values being reinforced are that democracy is a failure, that the Galactic Republic is not capable of contributing to this conflict uh, or resolving this conflict in any meaningful way. They're not capable of taking concerted action and that it's actually the, the hero, you know, or anti-hero, that it's this single family of magical, unusually well-endowed uh, psychic human beings. You mean in the metaphysical it, sense with endowment, I assume. So what? Oh, yes. It's, uh, <laughs> yes, they, they look at the size of those midichlorians. But, <laughs> the quantity. <laughs> right. Lightsabers. But, you know, that, that so uh, oftentimes, you know, in, the, in that uh, sense in which the culture is the water in which we're swimming and we're usually mm-hmm. not aware of, or, or of the air that we're breathing, that we all, that it's not just the products of our culture, but the way that in which we come to them, that we interact with them, and, and the way that that interaction assigns a particular value. Like, and just it's odd that in, in <laughs> like assigning value to democracy, right? You know, right. maybe was, democracy isn't such a good system. There's a lot of evidence that it's not. Yeah. Right. So actually, uh, this is. Uh, Hopefully you don't get shut down now, but man, that, I, I can't say I disagree. I, I can't say for a second, though, that I have heard mixed uh, uh, interpretations of the Chinese market with respect to, to, say, Star Wars in particular, and that it did not perform as well as expected, and it's in part because of a lack of cultural uh, saturation with respect to prior uh, Star Wars lore, etc. So I think we might need to get some more guests on the line for that one going forward. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to talk about Star Wars with every <laughs> we'll, podcast. We'll a special one. But, that's, but that's a great example, really, of where the there's a there's a totally obvious reading once it's pointed out to you that there's a different way to come away from those films uh, ethically mm. that they're making a different argument than most American viewers would believe that they're making or not mm. not, not that one view is necessarily more correct than the other but that there are multiple possible interpretations and multiple possible ethical stances for this mm-hmm. film and so, like, you know, just using that as an example, it, it casts a light on you know, the conversation that you're facilitating about the limitations in our perspective simply because we're existing within something and we need to take a step out of it in order to have any perspective on it at all. Um, I'm curious. I'm curious what you hear and where you want to go. Well, I, I got a quick anecdote. I, I, I do like to put in some, some more anecdotal like storyline elements in, into yeah. our podcast here and there. And, and, and well, yesterday, uh, my, my girlfriend and I uh, went to go meet up with some friends in Coney Island to go to the aquarium down at the end of Brooklyn. And it was my first time going there since Sandy. Hurricane Sandy uh, decimated that, that part of Brooklyn, and the aquarium took a big hit. And as we were taking the subway down, at uh, the point a little bit past and near to Bay Ridge, the, the line that we were on is above ground, and, and it's just a looks like a landfill, like a, like a post-apocalyptic uh, landscape, just filled with uh, impromptu landfill deteriorates uh, and falling apart infrastructure. And um, that was the window that I got going towards the aquarium. And as soon as we got out of the subway and started walking towards the boardwalk on, on Coney Island, I just I felt this this wave of energy uh, sort of echoing from Hurricane Sandy, this immense devastation, mm. and, and the irony of, of looking out over the ocean while feeling our effect on the planet and, and the potential ramifications and destruction and, and uh, difficulties thereof, while also walking towards this aquarium to, to see a bunch of uh, especially kids with their families out on Sundays to appreciate the natural world. It, it's so oh. incredible, like the, the disparity and the uh, uh, the 
perceived duality, but at the same time, it was kind of beautiful because the staff at the aquarium in Coney Island uh, treat their animals, as far as I know, very ethically. It's a very highly rated aquarium in terms of national standards, and they did their best to rescue as many animals as possible during Sandy, and you could feel the love from the employees there. It seems like a duality, but maybe it's not. It's, it's uh, all pointing to something, but I don't know what. That's culture. I think it's, it's uh, perhaps a little unfair to, like, saddle you with this, Mariah, but since you are the, the uh, representation for feminine wisdom in this conversation, <laughs> then this seems like a really good place to interact with or to, to connect all of this to the notion of compassion. And, and mm-hmm. you know, in our in this podcast, we really make an emphasis on some issues and some topics that I think, in certain respects, are fairly masculine. You want to get new agey with it? These are things associated with the archetype of Saturn. You know, time, legacy, responsibility, fate. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's what we would call masculine uh, justice is also feminine compassion. It has this whole different angle to it. And you know the, the way that we, the way that we organize uh, our experience of self as an agent in time, also has everything to do with the, the the sort of feminine sense of self as expanding in space and interacting with or identifying as objects in the uh, the surround. That sort of I don't know. It's, there's like a jellyfish image in my head of this thing that's like reaching out and touching everything around it, and that's. That's where, you know, that when you talk about the matrix, it's Latin for mother. That, that mm. space is literally the mother within which, it's the womb within which all of culture exists. You know, mm-hmm. and the culture is in some sense the mother, be it a good mother or a bad mother. Right. But it is, it's the matrix from which we are, must be born in our process of self-actualization. You know, where does mm. all of this, you know, how do you relate personally and in, in your practice working with people you know, how do you relate all this? Yeah, totally. Um, I love that you brought up compassion because I think part of the reason why I'm picking a fight with culture to begin with is because I feel like it instills in us a way of being often but not always different than our human nature. And that this is actually happening, which is fine. And mm-hmm. <laughs> what that means is sort of like in that same permaculture sense of wherever there is an edge, you know, wherever the the ocean meets the sand, wherever the forest meets the meadow, wherever there's an edge of a rock, is this really dynamic place where two different systems of life meet. And if you know our Hegel and all of our good dialectics, usually they birth a third thing. So these edges are places of great excitement and diversity and growing. So um, I think where my compassion comes out in picking this fight against culture is I just think, you know, a lot actually based on my experience when I was working as an anthropologist in the developing world, you know, what happens if you are born gay in a village where that's not allowed? What if you have a really strong mind in a cultural context where it's expected that you're going to do laundry every day for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so just coming back to that compassionate belief that compassion on all sides, like both for the fact that we have these cultural systems for a reason and the fact that human nature is coming 
and pouring out of us at all times, that our beings are trying to do something. And what would it mean to also make space for that to happen? And that's what's really exciting and dynamic, the sort of growth and movement within humans interfacing with time. Hmm. And I, I just think when we bring love for, for the human spirit and for human nature, um, both to individuals and for the systems that we create, then we have the potential to do real change real transformation because you know i think about something like climate change and what would culture tell us culture would either put us to sleep and tell us not to think about it and to keep buying and consuming and business as usual or there's another culture that's trying to say desperately that we need to do something different and a lot of times what i hear in that desperation is a lot of shaming and a lot of the other and a lot of self-hate because maybe in the 60s, they had the luxury of being able to say, if you're not a part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. But when we're talking about something with climate change, that's fundamentally about every system that we have that enables our survival. Every, every system that sort of um, interfaces between us, technology, and the natural world, then even if you're part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Hmm. So if there's like a huge lack of relationship in climate change. Like what I see is so beautiful about these kids going to the aquarium right next to the polluted oceans is, of course, we have this historical inheritance that we've received. And yet those kids that are there in the light and wonder of jellyfish and octopi and all of these other fascinating creatures, mm-hmm. they're there building relationship with each other, having a great time on this field trip and also with those creatures in the natural world. This, uh, this deep connection to the, the idea of like the fringe uh, zone or the, the uh, connection between multiple biomes in, in any environment, very palpable there both in the uh, physical geographical context but also in the cultural and the biological brings to mind the idea of maintaining, say, osmotic pressure in, in, uh, inside a cell wall, that the cell can uh, continue with its homeostatic metabolism and uh, other controlled uh, biological processes, that in a way culture seeks to, to define the edges and to hold things together with scaffolding and maintain homeostasis. But we are in a fundamentally mm-hmm. dynamic and interchanging uh, world and and cells cannot function without the ability for the, the lipid bilayer to allow proteins and other structures to pass through. So I, I feel like culture does have a role, but there is certainly an element of restraints and and lack of potential uh, when those controls are taken too far or, or when they're uh, bundled too far into dogma or expectation of what the culture should provide or what's expected uh, of ourselves in that culture. Right, and I love that you bring in change. So beautifully because most of history, culture, religion, whatever you want to call it, is just the legacy of how humans have dealt with the undeniable fact that things change. Yeah. All flows. The Tao happens. Mm-hmm. And that needs to be built into our thinking. And, you know, in a sense, this notion of culture is itself at risk of congealing into something. When it's like, in fact, we know that at the base of things. All of our concepts are built on language, which is built on associations, which is a very slippery substrate that uh, 
a word never means the same thing, precisely the same thing twice. By virtue of it being a linguistic object, it is situated differently in the context of every single person's unique experience. Mm-hmm. And so culture is already a permeable membrane, and we, we may kind of run a risk of... <laughs> We cannot help but be the the time in which we were raised and the, the circumstances you know by which we were enculturated. So it may be that we're already inescapably bringing some rather like rigid and inflexible ideas to this conversation about the problems that we have with rigid and inflexible ideas. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Mariah, one of the things that we enjoy doing with guests and ask you is mm-hmm. in in light of the idea that this podcast might be heard by someone a thousand years from now who's you know understanding English through a brain implant you know <laughs> and it's just totally <laughs> you know who knows or, or that we all die out and some alien right. lands on uh-huh. this alien i use that uh slur right because that's alien really just means somebody who's outside of our our little membrane right, right. it's alien to us mm-hmm. uh you know hopefully we we accept the uh legal status of persons from other worlds in it by a thousand years from now but at any rate um, or maybe we'll have uh, become obsolete and we're just gone <laughs> oh god yeah well whatever happens <laughs> if, if this recording lasts for an it you know an you know, unthinkable span of time, uh-huh. then not knowing anything about who's going to hear it, what kind of message would you offer in this time capsule to those that, you know, beyond the event horizon of that of this recording? You don't know who's going to hear it, so what do you have to say to that invisible audience? And we can uh, we can edit a gap if you want to take time, because it's, uh, it's not a loaded <laughs> question at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> interesting part of me is still on this thing about um about climate change (laughs) about climate change and uh and what it means to to love the human being within the complexity of climate change and like is it possible to love our desire for convenience or the fact that we exist within a time scale of human life instead of a planetary life or even the life of a tree where my problems with my boyfriend might take up, you know, 90% of my conscious thoughts in a given day. And, um, and then how much is really left over to think about the planet that's existing on a much longer time scale than I am and how to actually love that truth of the human creature. You know, I think Lacan said people don't change because of ideas. They change based on the evolution of their own desires. And part of what helps me love the desirous creature within is curiosity. Just to be very curious about who am I and to be open about what it is that I want. And I think that helps me have a wider view of myself and certainly of other people if I can just be curious about who they really are and what their true nature is. And so expanding that out, not only to to trees and jellyfish, who might be aliens anyway, but to whoever might be coming to find a time capsule on the planet a thousand years from now, is 
more of a feeling than any sort of expression that I would want to have. That there's a curiosity and a love for what we do find. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Future fossil encounter. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly, and and hopefully somebody does encounter it. So hopefully somebody does does find this stuff later on. But who knows? I mean, uh, maybe maybe it will just be like the the weird giant land crabs at the end of the time machine by H. G. Wells, like playing frisbee with our M discs. Fine with me. It's kind of an amusing uh, uh, alternative. Land yeah. crabs. I'm still curious about you, and I love you. Yes, I want a whole I want a whole extra uh, sequel if we can revive H. G. Wells on just the land crabs, but. Um, I, I wanted to take it back really quick to the to kind of the more uh, etymological roots of culture itself and looking at the philosopher Cicero, who uh, uh, defines uh, roughly culture as being a, a collective aspiration towards the perfection or the, uh, the increased perfection of the philosophical and, and metaphysical ideological soul of humanity. Here we are uh, hundreds of years later. And uh, Cicero is not with us anymore. We're we're left with us and and the the etymological root uh, connecting to this person that we'll never meet. So so where are we with that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but I like I like the idea that it could be hot. <laughs> well, it is getting hotter in terms of the uh, the actual temperature records on Earth right now. So we do have, we do have the heat, uh, the little bit of canteen on totally. our heels tonight. <laughs> Totally. I, I do recommend anybody who's interested in, in, in Cicero, like, pop him into to Google, see what you find, watch a few videos, poke around on Wikipedia. There are some interesting uh, connections there with respect to the unfriend with benefits view of, of culture, but I guess in his sense, uh, the more ideological. <laughs> I, love, um, I love that it's hot. You know, I spoke about, oh, I spent a lot of time thinking about my boyfriend or whatever. It's sort of like when we do, when we are invested in relationships that are hot, that are, you know, addressing our desires, where we love, then we stick it out when it's easy and when it's hard, when it's good and when it's bad, you know, for better or for worse. And I think that's true. It's like we all need to uh, fall in love with those things that we're trying to, to protect and defend and support. There's this fabulous quote on Sri Nisar Gadara, who, I don't know if you're familiar, is one of those Advaita non-dual... The uh, I am that guy? Yeah, 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 yeah. And he says, the problem is not desire, it's that your desires are too small. Absolutely. <laughs> so there, there we are again, pushing, pushing the envelope, pushing that permeable boundary of our, com of our compassion. You get into that, into the esoteric depth, of that inquiry, that, that line of where do I end, you know, mm. and, I and where where do I end and where does the other begin? And you get into some really interesting stuff where you've got people like uh, David Data, uh, again, in sort of a more masculine school or tradition, teaching people to make love to the, the entire world, to like mm -hmm. all of your experience, as if everything you're experiencing, including your own body and your own thoughts, are your lover again with the matrix where like even my own spatial extent in the environment is in some sense uh, feminine and can be penetrated inquisitively uh -huh. you know can be, be opened and explored playfully and uh -huh. as soon as you as soon as you talk about it in that way it changes the entire conversation because what for like the last 500 or a thousand years our relationship to quote-unquote nature, this again, this idea that we made up about a world mm -hmm. that isn't us, absolutely reflects the the pathological masculine expression 
of subversion, control, manipulation, violence. We're raping the land and, you know, we're exploiting everything. Back around to, you know, this issue of what is invisible to our culture as a primarily economic culture. Right. It's like, well, the second was invisible to our culture until we created a device that allowed us to exploit the second. Mm-hmm. Because we desired greater efficiency. You know, what if we desired play? What if we were to desire something that is uh, the richness, the fullness, the sensual depth, the holistic sense of completeness was that which, I don't know. I'm uh, hoping you will interrupt me at this point. <laughs> I, I, I could riff on that for just a second, uh, just because it came to mind, like, uh, Maria, I, I would love to get your take on this too, but there's that, that meme that's been floating around of that moment when you realize that all the beautiful chorus of frogs, insects, and birds that you hear at night are just a bunch of animals desperately trying to get laid. <laughs> Maybe all of our chatter on the internet and everything else is all just like this... Uh, uh, this march, this progression uh, that we are sort of at the mercy of, or maybe not. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe we're just part of that chorus of frogs. Uh, I'm okay with that. It like, sounds uh, nice. It's totally. Cool. Creativity is mating strategy. Spirituality is mating strategy. Intellectual achievement is mating strategy. Right. It's it's very, you know, it's uh, the highly Darwinian perspective on it, but it's intriguing, and it's, it's kind of nice when you're listening to the chorus of frogs at night, because it sounds pretty nice. It sounds beautiful. Um, but the underlying cause is, is fairly straightforward. Well, that's, I mean, that's, uh, that's uh, elementizing the situation, right? Which is right. fair, and we already have called that out. There's like the equal and opposite reduction, which is mm. the reduction that uh, a lot of people in the spiritual traditions take to all sexual congress, all, you know, all mating strategy, all creativity, etc., is actually the, like, the cosmic act. You know, and that it, it all nestles within the uh, God play as a subset of all possible creative expressions, right? So it's like either of those isn't really complete unto itself. We can reduce all human effort and activity to, well, we're all just trying to get laid. We're going to try and grow some greater desire here. Then we can look at trying to get laid as something that the totality of, of being or the ground of being is doing as a way of enriching itself in the equal and opposite direction uh, ontologically in terms of like manifestation has the goal of being small and broken and many right whereas uh, evolution would have the goal of being large and whole and united you look at the earth from space and you've got uh, the Coriolis effect pushing storms one way in the northern hemisphere and the other in the southern and it's like we have this flow and this counterflow that are necessary in order to, to paint a complete picture of what's going on. There's, um, there's like a whole palette of, of desires and experiences and senses involved in what that could mean. When you're saying nature, you know, like birds and frogs and all of that, uh, you know, one of the, the identities I used to have for myself was a cyborg anthropologist. And I did actually study cyborg anthropology in university. Hmm. And it was fundamental in my development just to be able to collapse one of the strongest dichotomies, I think, in our culture between nature or between people and technology and coming to see, as Kevin Kelly says, technology as 
the sixth phylum of life. All of our technologies and all of the social systems that we have created, time and the clock and seconds included, are a part of nature. So in that sense, maybe the ultimate endgame is to get laid in space. <laughs> or for Earth to get laid by space. Ooh. <laughs> maybe that happened already. <laughs> I mean, shoot, we may be the orgasms uh, of their coupling already happening. <laughs> We're just well, a big ah. Uh. <laughs> well, if you are to, if you are to, you know, the we had Bruce Damer uh, on the podcast a couple episodes ago, and and a big part of the work that he's doing in the origins of life is on. The, the growing likelihood that Earth was, quote-unquote, seeded with amino acids and, and nucleotides and other proto-living chemicals. So really, it very much is that thing. You know, a comet with the right blend of, of juices lands on a planet that's just warm enough. And, just... <laughs> and if we can break down the traditional story that the ovum is passive and like just whatever fastest sperm gets there, but actually understand that the ovum is also an active participant in the insemination process that is discerning about which semen to let in. Ooh, and you can say the Earth herself had an active role in deciding what and in this life case, to let on this planet. True, because the Earth was too hot. Like, probably comets were landing on Earth that would have been, you know, excellent for seeding life for hundreds of millions of years before the Earth was cool enough that the chemicals weren't just totally destroyed. I even had this thought the other day, which is like, where did water come from? Like, water must be its own extraterrestrial voyager that goes through the cosmos, choosing different different planets that also choose it. Sure. I mean, uh, I was listening to a, an episode of the uh, Joe Rogan podcast the other day featuring one of his frequent guests, Duncan Trussell, and they were talking about the fact that in heterosexual coupling that, that women tend to have a much higher uh, emphasis on smell. Uh, than a lot of men realize, and then that the, the biological compatibility actually has a significant role in the sustainability of any given relationship, which can actually be, interestingly enough, upset by things like birth control, uh, right. disrupting sort of that biological landing pass to create a, a couple going forward, and, and many of these uh, checks and balances that I think we're, we're increasingly uh, moving through, and in a way I feel validated in my own relationship personally that my girlfriend thinks I smell nice because still thinks I smell good uh, then, then I guess our biology is doing pretty well so that makes me feel a lot more competent and confident uh, in going forward with respect to her uh, instinctive uh, connection to our relationship in ways that I can never perceive. I'm not even wired to do it. This whole issue of trusting the whole intelligence of the human mm-hmm. organism mm-hmm. Now that when trusting that when someone smells bad yeah. a good reason that mm-hmm. you have evolved to associate that smell with disgust, I think is a huge part of this conversation about what it means in the reclamation of the feminine aspects of mind and experience. And so, like, I guess the immediate question that pops out is, well, what does time smell like? <laughs> mm. And that time smells different at different points. Like understanding the human as a whole field creature, it's also nested within a context of ecologies of similar wholeness, mm-hmm. right? Like I, like Venus, which for so long has been associated with desire and attraction, <laughs> going back to, to the ancients, also does now in recent study have some scientific correlation to our endocrine system, that our actual Wait, chemical, what? yes, 
Venus and the cycles of Venus has been correlated to fluctuations in human endocrine systems, which means both the chemicals that we're producing and the chemicals that we're attracted to have some parallel with the cycles of Venus. There's a lot of similarity in how those planets were understood by different pre-modern cultures that were not in communication with one another. Right. One of the big things with Venus is that these cultures were associating it with love, beauty, and attraction, but also with war, with oh. conflict. And in Greek mythology, it's very obvious because uh, Aphrodite is the woman that Zeus had to arrange a marriage for because all of the other gods were fighting over her. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's this this notion of you can't really you can't seem to separate attraction and and because attraction requires dualism, it requires two entities uh-huh. and conflict. It's a physical thing. It's like friction. It's like just by having two, there's innately the potential for conflict in that relationship, and that is the conflict that creates the synthesis. Oh, yeah. I mean, just imagine, like, Venus is doing something in the sky, and your chemistry and biology are doing something that activates your smell, attraction, and desire for someone. And all of a sudden, you have love. It means inherently that you have something to lose. And if you think about, you know, seven plus billion people all doing that together, it's no wonder that culture is kind of an asshole sometimes. It's like, how else, how else to control this huge mess of biology? And, and, and almost infinitely variable uh, perceptions and worldviews and attitudes and gender and uh, religion and uh, color perception. <laughs> <laughs> I love you saying that because it makes me see so much of the planet as just this giant gene swarm. <laughs> and that this magic that we call attraction or falling in love is, of course, very important because it's uh, the deciding factor and the propagation of that gene swarm. Yeah, I, I almost wonder if somebody out there has written the book or will write the book, uh, taking a riff from Origin of Species and just go straight for the uh, the bullet to uh, name it Orgasms of Species, because that would be a fun book. Uh, <laughs> there, there are some excellent books on non-human sex out there. You would know, Michael. I'm just sorry. <laughs> you anthropologist slash archaeologist, you. Yes. <laughs> So I'm, I say the leopard slugs are one of my personal favorites. There's a great example of, of two animals that actually form a physical helix in their copulation. Mm, so a double guess, helix, in fact. Let's yeah. a, let's, a full masculine and full feminine. True. Let's, let's actually link uh, link people in the show notes to the video of mating leopard slugs. Cause that's, I think, a, a, a totally perfect visual metaphor for the the uh, course that this conversation is taking. <laughs> Indeed. I think that's from Microcosmos, not Planet Earth. I don't want to miss the opportunity, Mariah, to inquire a little bit more about your past life as a cyborg anthropologist, because uh, one of the books that got me really into thinking about the coevolution of humankind and our technologies was written by a woman, a theologist. Uh, her name is Jennifer Cobb, and she wrote a book called Cyber Grace in 1999 that if any of you in the audience are interested was a fantastic introduction to the history and and current state of the relationship between the ideas of the internet and of you know cyberspace in general with the notion of a process-based god that is constantly revealing itself through new bodies and new forms and and new manifestations. Mm. And her last chapter was 
uh, a series of conversations with women that are working in the in the cyber world on you know building out uh, virtual reality and and other new uh, internet enabled media and the big critique from them which you know unsurprisingly was that there's not enough heart that the internet as a reflection of, of our culture now is um, kind of sociopathic because we haven't found a way to code for all of these these subtle and, and unquantifiable aspects of our experience. So like I'd love to know more about your story with with that and how your your study in that area uh, specifically, you know, go into please go in a little bit about, you know, for our audience what cyborg anthropology even really is. And like and, and how you got from there to here and, and you know what what changed for you in that process. Yeah. Um, I think before I found cyborg anthropology, I was one of those same voices of feeling like there wasn't enough warmth in the realm of technology, that most of it was geared towards militarism and capitalism and this very um, impersonal world of exchanging haterisms online. And it was definitely guilty of my own sense of nostalgia for some past moment that never was. And I, too, was introduced to cyborg anthropology through women, through Donna Haraway, who is one of the main pioneers in the field, and Deborah Heath. And if we are going to make things binary, like people like to do, and say that nature is a woman and that technology is a man or something. Ah. Um, the podcast will be binary, by the way. Uh, full disclosure. Ones and zeros and all that other. All those algorithms other, and such. Is the base materia. I think a lot of people, a lot of people see it that way, you know, and see that um, see society and social structures as the. Um, <laughs> the children of linear materialism raping the bountiful garden of the earth and giving birth to, you know, Walmart or whatever. And um, so then there's all of this feminine rage that comes back against that, you know, saying that this is horrible. And I think that there's there's a lot of reasons why that rage is there and why it's, it's justified and valuable and wants to be heard. But the move that these women were making for me in cyborg anthropology and the move that I made myself through studying it was to um, to see uh, all of it as nature and to see it as um, like coming back to that idea of self-love. It's like easy to love the, the bird, but like you got to love Walmart a little bit too. And more than anything, cyber anthropology is about becoming lucid in the dream of technology. It's becoming aware in the historical process to realize that me withholding my engagement from the technological evolution happening is part of allowing it to continue down those tracks that I disagree with or don't feel so good about. So to become lucid in the dream of technology, to recognize that uh, that humans have existed in intimate and reciprocal relationship with our tools um, and our creative implements going back to the beginning of what could be considered human 
and that to become lucid in that moment means that you actually get to choose how you want to interact and interface with tools going forward. Hmm. Well, I have to say, you know, I, uh, speaking of the tools available, um, out of all the times I've been trolled on the internet, which has unfortunately been too many and, and will be many more times to come, um, I'm not sure if I can count a single instance of a, a woman uh, being the, the troll. <laughs> so the utilization <laughs> of, of the technologies available, this, this cyber anthropology, uh, is uh, expressed uh, in, in varying states. And, and for me, there is a correlation between the, uh, the uh, fluidity and honesty and respective communication and the feminization of, of that communication as well. And that does not just apply to my, my internet exchanges either. I, honestly, I prefer the company of women in my, in my personal time because it's a lot more fun and equitable and I can get a lot more done and have more fun. Heart equals broken. Well, uh, Michael, you're, you're, you're a bro forever. Uh, you're, a B, you're a BFF and you know it, so... You don't have to have your heart broken right now. <laughs> Fair enough. Look at what we're doing. Uh, this is this is exactly uh, what I'm getting at. Um, I would I would say my ideas just on what it means to be a cyber anthropologist have changed changed a little bit. Actually, after that movie, Her came out. Great movie, by the way. Totally. Yeah. And um and it just seems so obvious that technology and artificial intelligence will obviously surpass us in the near future. And whereas now we kind of have the opportunity to be either the conscious or unconscious sort of parents of technology, maybe technology's own life force and dreaming is already moving it in directions. And then once that happens, I mean, humans really will be obsolete. You know, the, the intelligence and the speed of that propagation will far surpass anything we can imagine. And what seems so cool about that movie is that there was like a, a warmth there, like you were saying, like almost by technology coming into being, it came into, um, I, I want to say personhood, but you know, it came into its own form of life, which is different, obviously, than our own, but which um, had heart to it because it had its own self-determination. Mm. I think there are a lot of uh, a lot of trolls out there that could use that friend, uh, whether voiced by Scarlett Johansson or not, through their OS to put them in line. But that's just me. Um, I feel like there are a lot of people out there like you know uh, this is this is going back to um, I know it's it's really sad to, to talk about, but the the shooter in Colorado not too long ago at the uh, um, at the abortion clinic. Uh, you know, once Hi. once we had time to sort of reflect on, on who this man was and what his life was like, it, it seemed pretty evident that he was very lonely and really just craved the, the attention and the company of, of women. And who knows, right. maybe if we had a, an intelligent OS that could sort of impersonate that feminization and provide either a mother or a partner role, whatever it might be, a connection between the two, uh, we could see a, a perhaps like a reduction in, in violent crime, a reduction in mental health issues, you know? Uh, people just mm -hmm. need company, and there are as a result of this this uh, constant onslaught against the feminine over thousands of years, a lot of lonely men out there, because they don't know how to, to relate, they don't know how to interact or connect, and, and to me it's very sad. It's not that they're the victims or, or that they're evil, it, it's sort of this, uh, um, this deep uh, um, empathetic resonance and, and sadness. Uh, I feel bad for him. I feel bad for everybody that got affected by that, like awful, but... Um, 
our, our culture is not right now that adept at, at uh, connecting those dots and, and I think we're getting better and there's a lot of tumult as a result and, and a lot of conversations that have been you know uh, making the rounds constantly via our media and, and personal connections but uh, mm-hmm. um, I, I do think that our techno technosphere our, our uh, uh, internet and, and internet of things extending out into the physical world uh, is having a feminine effect on our re- relatability on our ability to connect those uh, seemingly disparate hemispheres. Um, that's my hope, anyway. I guess we'll wait and see. The, the, the trolls, again, tend to be more vocal, and they do tend to be guys. <laughs> right. And, you know, I mean, my, my compassion point with, with trolls is just, I think it's very easy, whenever you're not actualizing yourself in your life, to have a lot of hate for, for things outside that are. You know, it's like whatever criticism someone is lobbying against someone outside they obviously hold against themselves really strongly as well and it's probably all that criticism that makes it that much more difficult for them to create something and put it out there yeah but my problem I I think what that movie her showed is that even if there is a feminine OS that's created relationship is a two-way street Part of what's so so aggravating about these shootings, or I guess something that's really painful, is there's this guy down in, I think, Santa Barbara, who ended up murdering a bunch of girls who went to that university, like went into a sorority and shot like nine women. Mm. And he was, again, lonely, isolated, and in a certain way my heart goes out to him. And yet he responded with this huge sense of anger and entitlement. And um, he's like, these bitches should be fucking me. Like, these bitches are mine kind of mentality. And after he actually went through with all of the things that he was threatening to do on internet forums and in classes and even with his therapist, when he actually went through with it, the media came out and said, oh, he's a madman. He's a crazy guy. He's a bad apple. Yeah. Without looking at the fact that him previously saying those exact same sentiments had gotten tons of like likes and like hell yeah man from all of these forums that he was a part of Hmm. there's this like deep entitlement there that i think is also part of our entitlement that comes out when we think we do deserve the resources of the earth when we think we should be um given yeah the extensive amount of things that we take it's in a way like a, a tragedy of the the uh the feminine role in, in our culture that for generations now uh, mothers have in many cases been sidelined to a uh, support role versus a uh, leadership role and, and to you know be allowed to pursue those relationships with their children fully and their relationships with themselves fully and I do believe uh, uh, wholeheartedly that we've done our culture a disservice for generations now uh, by suppressing the feminine and it has as a result, I think, uh, taken us longer to figure this stuff out, and it's made it more messy. And uh, um, I do feel that we have a responsibility to try to, to uh, not tiptoe through this stuff, but walk confidently through it, be aware of the pitfalls and the, the you know the briars and bracken involved, but still keep moving forward. We just we really need to. Have you have either of you guys read the Sex 3.0 wiki? No. Is it about three ways? What's going on? <laughs> uh, it is. It's a fabulous resource uh, online, and uh, I suggest that you mute your mics and look it up right now because it is a, a short history. It's it's a wiki, obviously. It's a it's a user editable document, so it's a community project. 
but it's about the history of human sexuality and about um, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and do the the coup de gras here and tie together everything that we've talked about in this entire conversation um, by pointing out one in, in terms of seeing the internet as a feminizing force in society uh, seeing the violence against women and the non-human world upon which uh, both of whom upon which we rely as an extension of this uh, you know this uh, the pathological masculine etc that there's there's something floating around in this about how it is it, it's not just that we create the structures of society in which we live it's that they create us as well and right. that uh, when we talk about the word culture, going back to the etymology of culture, that culture has everything to do with the word cultivated and specifically the, the cultivation of land. And it has to do with the emergence of a, a sedentary agrarian society. So mm-hmm. this is, you know, the quote unquote civilization. Going back to Cicero, you know? actually, with the agricultural, so with the agricultural uh, 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 analogy going back to Cicero. Yeah, so, you know, if we want to link this to someone else's podcast, uh, Christopher Ryan and, and on Tangentially Speaking, whom I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners are already fans of him, uh, he's, he just finished writing a book called Civilized to Death, and it's about this very issue, about how what we harrow, like what we exalt as civilization, and maybe this is where we're getting into a semantic issue here, where uh, civilization, we take it as the the premier step forward but as is outlined in this uh this wiki they talk about how simply staying in one place and farming the land profoundly changed the way that we relate to the mystery what was up to that point a sacred mystery of animal reproduction mm-hmm. and it changed our notion of time in respect to our the way that we track and and, and pay attention to seasonal changes as well as over a longer span of time, the the issue of uh, generations and like generations of an animal and being able to track paternity, and it was like out of this whole context that emerged our our concept of ownership and therefore of entitlement and like our idea that the the wife is owned by the husband or the children are owned by the father uh, comes out of out of this and that the value systems of agrarian society are. Uh, being digested uh, on fairly rapidly on a, a geological time scale, first by the communication technologies of print, and now by the communication technologies of the internet, both of which operate in a more network and therefore sort of inherently feminine modality. Mm-hmm. And right. so it's all, it's almost it's almost uh, perfect from where I'm sitting that you would uh, take up arms against culture. Uh, using using the tools of the master's house in some sense, but also as as a, uh, a, a herald or harbinger or agent of this uh, this burgeoning networked feminine cornucopia of, <laughs> of uh, like the, the neo tribal revival. Damn, that's hot, Michael. That was good. Oh yeah, <laughs> can you really get into it? With this is a Richard Doyle thing. Is this eloquence? Is like you guys were saying, it's for mating. But it's mm. the song the song that that seduces the listener to break down that boundary, you know, to allow the the walls of the self to relax just a little bit and to be entertained. 
you know, to be captured by something. And like, hopefully, you know, that's what we're doing here. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, it does all seem to be connected in a way that with any luck, you know, that, that, and that's what they're getting at with the sex 3.0 The sex 1.0 was tribal orgiastic, you know, there was no real sense of self yet to speak of in the way that we mean it now. Mm. And sex 2.0 is culture and specifically agriculture and, you know, uh, agro culture. And then sex 3.0 is this, is one that is uh, gender fluid, that's associated around uh, idiosyncratic uh, personal boundaries and value systems and uh, does not maintain or adhere to any particular set of ideological norms. And so you get something that's, that's uh, actually uh, hermaphroditic and very fluid and adaptable. Leopard slug in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So we're, all, all partners are uh, exemplifying or manifesting in some way both masculine and feminine elements. Like, uh, I think it was, yeah, you might remember this, Mariah. Uh, Charles Eisenstein, mm-hmm. I think, was the one who talked about the masculine yin. Mm, feminine. Yeah. And how, like, men have, like, women have a clit, men have testicles, you know? And so there's this, the yin yang has like the, the dot of uh, the opposite color and either swoosh, you know? So like each of us contain the multitude and it doesn't really make sense to talk about it in like simple uh, black, white distinctions anymore. Hmm. I love that. I think we should make a movement to, to stop calling it the tribal revival and start calling it the leopard slugian revival. <laughs> yes. Embrace your, your inner slug. The, the mucus march. <laughs> Both of them. That's probably a more disgusting way of putting it on my own. But yeah, I, I like I like your terms better. And and uh, uh, Mariah, thank you very much for being our, our guest tonight. And and I hope uh, hope you don't mind that we we really dove full tilt into the uh, the sexual dynamism of culture uh, with our our first female guest. And thank you for for taking the point on that. Yeah, absolutely. It was my it was my pleasure. It was a, a great enjoyment of my time with you guys. Well, likewise, and, and uh, we'll mm-hmm. go ahead and make sure to share all relevant links and such uh, below and uh, include it in the information for the podcast. Uh, this is, again, Future Fossils. I'm, I'm Evan Snyder with my co-host, dun-da-da-dun, Michael Senior Garfield. There we go. Oh, wow. That's your pseudonym. I like it. It's very mysterious. And uh, we'll see where Senior uh, Garfield goes with the, uh, uh, the next podcast. Um, I don't know where else to take this other than uh, that it has once again made me feel vaguely and, and still somehow more definitively hopeful about the future. So thank you for helping me with that. Uh, I think uh, I'm not the only one in terms of uh, uh, misanthropy and, and our views towards culture being somewhat oppressive, but I think part of it is because uh, it's been honestly male dominant for so long. There are a lot of course corrections to be made, so let's, let's see what we can do. And I think a big part of it is that we're becoming aware that it's there. Right. And our own dreaming is moving us to grow beyond. Awesome. That's, well, that's beautiful, Mariah. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you guys. That really was fun. And I'm so excited for <laughs> the ongoing episodes of this podcast. And Well, thanks again, guys. Yeah, much love to you both. Y'all Aww. have a fabulous future. <laughs> All right. Well, so much love, you fossils. <laughs> All right, much love. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. All right, bye-bye.
done here, and we may not ever figure it out. We probably won't figure it out.